Robert, I don't think this is very funny. Bobby. Who is this? As you watch the screen, your heart begins to beat faster. There's a fluttering in the pit of your stomach. Your throat is dry. Your palms damp. Suddenly a chill runs down your spine. You clutch the person next to you. You tell yourself, it's only a movie. It's only a movie. But sooner or later, it's time to go home. Welcome to Filmstrip. I'm Jay. I'm Ron. And our special guest tonight is Aaron from the Generation Y podcast. How you doing tonight, Aaron? Good evening, gentlemen. We're glad to have you here. Aaron, tell folks a little bit about yourself and the Generation Y. Well, let's see. I would describe myself as a horror fan, although I don't like most horror films or books. But the ones I do love, I like better than anything else. And I've been podcasting since 2012. And I don't see any end to it. It has consumed my life. That is outstanding. I can understand the feeling. <laughs> so as, <laughs> uh, I, I recorded another show earlier tonight for something else, at least a different one, and working on this one with you guys. So I, I completely understand. Of course, we had your counterpart, Justin, on for our review of The Thing back at the end of September. And we wanted to make sure we got the, the other half of the dynamic duo on as well. And he, he recommended this film. You, you brought this one to the table tonight. We're talking about... The Devil's Rejects, starring Sid Haig, Bill Mosley, Sherry Moon Zombie, Ken Foray, Matthew McGrory, Lou Temple, and William Forsyth. Of course, directed by Rob Zombie. Released in 2005 on a budget of $7 million, grossed $19.4 million at the box office. Considered a cult classic by many. So, Aaron, this was your pick. Why this movie? Oh, it's, it's so difficult. I have a handful of films that I could talk about at length, probably. Or, or that at least sit at uh, the very top of my list when it comes to movies that I want to watch over and over again. Wow. This is one of them. That, that is amazing because I have a very interesting love-hate relationship with Rob Zombie uh, that I'll get into in a minute. But I want to throw to Ron first. Any background with The Devil's Rejects or Rob Zombie films? Yes, I saw this in movie theaters. I'm one of those $19.7 million or $19.4 million it made at the box office. I've got it autographed by Sid Haig when he came to town for a comic book convention thing. Uh, and I was a, a very big fan of it for quite a long time. Very cool. I, Rob Zombie, for me, like I was never a big fan of his music or anything. Like I knew who he was, and that was fine. And when he got into doing films, I kept hearing about stuff he did, and I heard about House of a Thousand Corpses, but I didn't see it. And it wasn't because I thought, oh, that's not really going to be my wheelhouse, because usually I'll watch anything horror. But I just, I don't know, I just missed it. And I thought, eh, I'll tell you all how I got introduced to it. 
our local Blockbuster, this is how long ago this was, was, oh my. was selling all of their old VHS tapes for like 50 cents. So it also tells you how long ago this was. <laughs> and I still, and to this day, still have a working VHS. And so I bought it because I was like, yeah, 50 cents, House of a Thousand Corpses. I've heard this is good. I'll give it a shot. Watched it. And I was generally freaked out by it. I was like, no, that was a very weird, creepy experience. So good on that. And then I heard this was coming out, and I just didn't go to see it because I thought, ah, sequels, I don't know if I want to do that. And I just never saw this. So I, I, this is a rarity on Filmstrip. I have never seen this before until watching it for this review. I uh, had completely missed it. I think I knew about it and knew about some of the more infamous scenes in it. I certainly knew what the ending, you know, because I'd seen that clipped up in a lot of different places. But I I just missed this one somewhere along the way. So, Ron, you said you saw it in theaters, Aaron. I'm assuming you saw it in theater as well. Yeah, I did, because after seeing House of a Thousand Corpses and really enjoying it, uh, I think the only thing that I didn't care that much about was the ending. And then I had read an interview with Rob Zombie, which, like you, I wasn't into his music. But he had said that he knew what he did wrong with House of a Thousand Corpses, and so The Devil's Rejects was going to be not quite a sequel. It has the same characters, but he was going to make a different, better film, he said. He had something, uh, he had some things in mind to fix what he did wrong with the first one. So I thought, well, that could cut either way. It could get worse, or maybe he'll make an even better movie. Yeah, that's the thing about, uh, about guys like him is when they say stuff like that, I always get wary, too, because I feel like... It, it's almost like Eddie Van Halen. It's like, how many times can you change your sound and just come back to the same place? You know, like, you, I don't know that you're fixing something that needs to be fixed. I liked House of a Thousand Corpses. I'm with you. The ending of it didn't really work for me. But I, I, I had written that up to the point that I'm like, well, I think that's the point. I think he just wanted to do something and then not really have a conclusion to it because it leaves it creepier for you. You know, zombie is an interesting guy because you'd think, you know, yeah, he's this huge horror buff and in some ways he is, but he likes stuff like Sam Peckinpah and, you know, the wild bunch and, and all that kind of stuff as much as he likes something like Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And you Eddie's can see obsessed it through with his, the, Yeah, go ahead. Eddie's obsessed with Groucho Marx. That too. So, and he's, he's obsessed with the seventies, like the, the sixties and seventies. Like this guy lives in a period and, uh, you can feel it in everything he's done. I mean, even more recent stuff. Like I don't know if, I don't know if either of you have seen Lords of Salem or Thirty One, but even those neither ones, one. Yeah, which are set in the same. They feel like something from a different era. I've seen Lords of Salem. I, I think I'm also the only person in this. I think I've seen Rob Zombie live more than you've watched this movie, Jay. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> and by that I mean I've seen him live like three times. Yeah, because I've seen this movie twice, so it's very good. <laughs> well, no, what, what I will say is is that he does have an affinity for 70s horror films. And um, not to spoil it too much, but I feel like in some ways he has perfected the 70s horror film, uh, at least in some aspects, at least with this film. That's something we could definitely get into because I do want to talk. I think the aesthetic is so much of this. Ron, I don't envy you to have to try to plot summarize and describe this to somebody <laughs> else, but I'm going to give it to you anyway because that's what you do here. Give us a plot summary for The Devil's Rejects. All right. 
After a shootout at the home of the psychotic Firefly family, two members of the clan, Baby and Otis, survive and flee the scene while a vengeful Sheriff John Quincy Wydell continues his pursuit. Reuniting with Captain Spaulding at a desert motel, the demented trio continue their murder spree, befalling a variety of hapless victims. Sheriff Wydell becomes increasingly enraged in his pursuit when he learns that Mother Firefly, who was captured in the raid, killed his brother, which pushes him over the edge, stabbing her to death. Wydell eventually catches up to the three and sadistically tortures them before they are able to break free once again. Wydell is killed in the mayhem, and all three members are injured. In a final showdown to the tune of Leonard Skinner's Freebird, the Fireflies drive towards an awaiting posse who gun down the three in a hail of bullets. That's a pretty good summary for what happens. I think the thing I was most struck by in this film is really how small and simple it is. I mean, we have the the opening raid. We spend an awful lot of time at the you know no-tail motel, and then we have some you know cuts to the sheriff's office, which could be the back of any office basically. And then we have the final showdown at the old Firefly House, and then the showdown on the road, and that's kind of it. And I think the simplicity of this is was a smart choice. I, House of a Thousand Corpses had a kind of a simple move to it, but then it almost got too much at, at once and then didn't know how to end, at least for me. So this one having a you know a really simple premise of people on the run and they're just gonna keep doing bad stuff until you know the, the time runs out. Uh, it's I mean it makes for a pretty straightforward uh, film. That said now, the visceral experience of what we get to witness on the screen is anything but simple. Like, there's some really messed up stuff in this film. Yeah, it starts off with a woman being dragged, and she's naked. Yeah, through the swamp, through the woods. I mean, it's... But again, having seen enough Rob Zombie stuff, I'm going, well, this is, this is kind of where we are. I mean, that, that's just what he does. And I, I want to ask you, like, I used to sum it up as, like, Rob Zombie is trying to shock people with this. But I don't really think he is. I think he just looks at the world as where there's, there's nasty stuff everywhere, whether you like it or not, and here it is. I mean, how do you read it? I read it as this, you know, typically in a film, the protagonist is not the center of the focus. In this film... I think everybody's a protagonist, really. But they focus on the Firefly family. And as you follow them, you can't help but be amused by them or get taken in a bit at times by them. So it's just a little different spin on things. Normally, if someone else had shot this film, the Firefly family would be, they would show up once in a while, but we would be following Wydell and his investigation. But Rob Zombie has spun it around and what it does is it opens up it opens up the whole story for us to really see what makes this family tick. What are their daily lives like? What are their thoughts? Um, what are their relationships like? And even though it gets pretty ridiculous and everybody's trying to slam each other every other minute, um, you can't help but feel like you've gotten some insight into a very twisted family. Yeah, I kind of I see where you're going with that, and I think you're you've hit on something that I I believe is sort of the larger arc of what Zombie's trying to tell here, because of the way he portrays the sheriff who gets out of control. Which I love William Forsyth, by the way. Just 
just about anything he's ever been in, I'm I'm down for. And he does not disappoint in this role. But that everyone has an edge and a dark side. And he just made a movie where there's no one to root for. You're just supposed to absorb it and watch it. And if anything, you, you come to some bit of understanding as to maybe why the Fireflies were the way they were. But it all ends with everybody dying. Like, it's, it's completely a downer in the end. I, I think it's interesting that you talked about um, how small the film feels. Uh, because uh, at least according to the IMDb trivia, uh, everything was shot within basically a block radius and that they essentially found a trailer that was sitting there like that. And that was where Captain Spaulding's house was. They had the no-tell motel there. They um, found a house in the middle of the woods and, and moved it into a set to be the, the Firefly home. Um in a lot of ways, this movie made me think of uh, an extremely less glamorous version of like Bonnie and Clyde because it puts us in the in the position of having to uh, having to identify, I guess, with the bad guys more so, at least what would be the traditional bad guys more than your average movie. Um, he's definitely pitching the. Uh, the Firefly family as kind of they're both horrible monsters and they're folk heroes at the same time. Cause they keep, he keeps going back to these like evocative images of like, for example, the opening shootout makes me think of uh, the Australian gangster slash folk hero, Ned Kelly. Uh, if you're familiar with him, he had a, uh, he was basically him and his gang were surrounded by a bunch of cops and they put on makeshift body armor made of like pot metal and had like a yeah. violent shootout with the police that lasted for quite some time and like hundreds of rounds of ammunition was expended. It's he's trying to build these characters, I think, as like anti heroes, but in the most anti heroic way <laughs> yeah yeah that, and i think you're right it's i think what he does is he just removes the word hero from everyone aaron you hit on <laughs> it there even the law enforcement in this is seen to be going you know above and beyond and too far because he's as driven by vengeance and bloodthirstiness as the fireflies are at some time and at one point in the film he turns the tables on them and becomes what they are the sadistic torturers yeah, it goes back to that phrase, one man's freedom fighter is another man's terrorist. And this mm -hmm. film very much plays with those kinds of themes. And then beyond that, the casting is brilliant because usually in a film you have some major players who, when they show up, you know exactly who they are. Like Tom Cruise. When he's on screen, that's Tom Cruise. You rarely see him step outside of himself and become someone else. Right. In this film, I'd say you could look at everybody and say, all these people are character actors just about. Uh, yeah. It's amazing. And so you get a lot of people really eating the role up. Like William Forsyth is brilliant as Sheriff Waddell. And um, that brings me to another point. I, I don't want to forget this because it's been a big deal to me. But before I came on, I read some reviews. And I noticed a lot of people were saying that the worst person in the film was Bill Mosley's character, Otis B. Driftwood. And they kept hammering home that, well... I mean, he's nowhere near as great as all these other characters. He's kind of bland. But 
I think what happens typically in a film is you have a very strong main character and then the supporting characters are very limited, but maybe special in their little roles. But in this film, I feel like everybody gets their moments and it's because they don't let a main character take over the film. And so with Bill, I, I almost feel like he has just enough that you follow him. You're horrified by what he does, but you're not really following him as much as you're eating up everybody else. I mean, as you watch Sherry Moon's character, or William Forsyth or Ken Forey, there are so many lines to remember, so many moments that will stand out to you later on as you're talking with friends about this film. See, Otis gets the best line in the movie for me, though, guys. That bit about that next thing coming out of your mouth better be some Mark Twain shit because it's about to be, you know, etched on your tombstone. I'm like, that was a fantastic right. line. And the way he delivers it is just flat. I mean, that's what I liked about him was as Sherry Moon can, you know, can be so sing-songy and up and down and, and Captain Spaulding is just a weird weird, demented thing. <laughs> and then you've got William Forsyth going to town. I kind of like that Bill Mosley was just kind of the flat F you to the world guy in the middle of all this mm-hmm. stuff. I mean, I, I enjoyed the fact that he played it in the middle. And I'm saying that as someone who watched this film twice and was both like, I don't know if I like this or not, but I like his performance, if that makes sense. <laughs> You're not sure if you liked it, though, huh? Well, I'm, I, you know, honestly, like I texted Ron, I said, man, I don't know about this one. I said, I, you know, and, and that's the thing is I will give anything its basic premise. I think I didn't get, I mean, again, it's being on the two times I've ever seen it. The first time I watched it, I thought, I don't know that I got this. And so I went back and caught it again today before we recorded. And I'm glad I did because I picked up on a lot more of it. And I think some of it was in what you were saying there is that it's all the subtlety in this, and that is not a word I thought I would ever use with a Rob Zombie movie, is subtlety. Uh, because he generally doesn't have any of it. But there's a lot of it in this movie. And it's there, but you have to dig it out from underneath all this heinous shit he's going to throw at you. My my wife, who is a huge true crime fan and a big generation, uh, big generation Y fan, I mean, she's got like t-shirts and a tote bag and some other crap. Um, but she watches a ton of true crime documentaries. So since we've been married, I've learned more about Charles Manson than I knew possible. And to me, especially now, cause this is the first time I've watched it since, you know, my wife went on her most recent Manson binge. Uh, I get a lot of Charles Manson in what Bill Mosley's doing as Otis. And it's not just that he cribs the, the line, you know, I'm the devil and I'm here to do the devil's work from the family. But, a lot of it in the way that he is a lot of it's in his body language i think like if you watch otis and then you watch like the charles manson prison interviews you can see bill mosley aping a lot of that either consciously or, or unconsciously aping a lot of like charlie manson's physicality and it's a lot scarier on somebody who's like six feet tall like bill mosley is than it is on somebody who's like five foot three charlie manson right but it's it's very it very much it, he's the one who seems the most tied back into his character in the first movie in House of a Thousand Corpses as the kind of apocalyptic uh, street preacher charismatic type. I see what you're saying um, there, though. I kind of I mean, I don't know how much different baby is in this movie than she was in House of a Thousand Corpses. She was the muse that suckered you in and that's kind of what she does here when they meet up with the band at the hotel i mean that's still the role she's playing 
Yeah, but I mean, it, one of these two is is a great character actor, and the other is the director's wife. <laughs> well, you called it out. So. <laughs> she's not well, awful in everything he's put her in. I, I'll say that. No, she's not. She's not terrible in this. But like I, I think I agree with the consensus that I'm really digging on what Bill Mosley is doing. Yeah, it more does, so than. The others. Yeah, it does sound like we, we've all kind of appreciated what Otis is doing, and we've talked about Sherry Moon, but I do want to talk about Sid Haig's Captain Spaulding because that is one twisted performance. I mean, it it's genuinely unnerving to watch him uh, in everything he does on the screen, from the way he looks to the way he talks to the way he carries himself. And when he, like, says stuff... That's genuinely horrific, you know. Like you better kill me dead, and all this kind of you know stuff that he lays out. Like I genuinely am enthralled by the performance and scared by it. Like I'm not scared by the movie as much as I'm like that. Sounds like something a real life psychopath would say and do. Having watched and read a lot of true crime too, and I'm like this this guy is really twisted. Yeah, and that's the subtlety of his character. And a, a lot of people, since he seems to be the main guy in the family, a lot of people wanted him to be bigger. But again, I think if they had made him bigger and not so subtle, I'm not sure this balance would work. They're they're balancing a lot of character actors here. There are a lot of people that make appearances in this film. And because of the way he is, I think it allows everyone to have their moments. And then he still has his, like you said, when he pretends like God might be striking him down and then he pulls his hair away from his face and says he's there to do the devil's work. Uh, yeah, he's, he's definitely the one you have to be worried about the most. I really, for me, the thing about, uh, about Sid Haig at least is that he, he's a huge dude by Hollywood standards. I've, I mean, when I met him, I'm six one, and he was a three or four inches taller than me. Uh, he is broad as all get out, and to and the thing that struck me most about everything Sid Haig is doing is how much he shows those messed up teeth yes. that he's got in for this movie, and his real teeth do not look like that. Thank goodness, because I would have pissed myself having met him but his, his the teeth are it's just such a callous disregard for basic hygiene that it's like it's an instant signifier that this guy is seriously messed up because look at the choppers he's got hanging out of his mouth. Yeah, you know, like it's that he doesn't care. But I think what's neat is the way he's introduced to us is in a moment of insecurity. He's having this dream fantasy about this, you know, decent looking hooker screwing him. And he says something smart to her. And she pulls a gun on him and shoots him. And then he wakes up and he's next to, you know, the, the what's on the other end of the actual phone line, like in the uh, Love in an Elevator video from the Aerosmith days, you know, like not the blonde, you know, buxom thing that, that was screwing him, but, you know, something you wouldn't want to fantasize about. And he's like having this whole freak out and in the middle of it, baby calls him. And that's when you get that, that bit where, she, you know, he's her father. 
And that was an interesting twist to tie them together like that. And I couldn't remember it, so I wanted to ask, is that revealed in House of a Thousand Corpses, or is that a Devil's Rejects thing? Uh, you know, that's a good question. I hadn't really thought about that, but it definitely feels like in Devil's Rejects we get more character stuff. In House of a Thousand Corpses, it was very much a, tra- a traditional horror film, so they didn't need to explain as much. You just had to watch the horror and appreciate it. Whereas in this film, there are a lot more lines, it feels like. There's a lot more interaction. So we f- we feel like we learn a lot more about what makes them tick and who they are. Well, yeah, I mean, you have all the interplay between Baby and Otis. And, you know, when she's uh, flirting with the, the guy in the band or whatever, she's like, well, you know, my brother's going to blow your teeth out. And you know, she always refers to him as my brother. You know, it's like she's really proud of him, you know. And then he says something later. It's like, but she's not getting it off. What's wrong with my sister? And, like, they're playing that game back and forth with everybody. And while they're doing that, it's it's awful and it's torturous to the people in the hotel room or the motel room, rather. But you, you're you learning about their family dynamic. And, you know, maybe it's not what I like. I don't appreciate it. It's not traditional family values. But I think what Rob Zombie's trying to show us is that even in a in a group of sadomasochistic murderers who are just you know hell bent for leather to to do mayhem, there's still family dynamics. There's still drama. There's still, dare I say, love between them, or at least caring for each other. And there's still some tutti frutti. Yeah, yeah. How how dare we forget tutti frutti? <laughs> it's <laughs> it's it's really interesting. Um, having pointed that out, Jay. Um, what, I did notice a lot of the family stuff this time that I didn't see before, and you can kind of see how Baby takes after Captain Spaulding. You can see that there's kind of a gleefulness that they both have. Like, for example, when uh, when Captain Spaulding is, uh, when he's carjacking PJ Souls, and he's threatening that kid, yeah, uh, the, the little kid in the car, you can tell that he's having a good time, kind of like how Baby is enjoying like tormenting the people on the bed and it kind of counterbalances Otis who is a bit more like mother firefly in that uh, Captain Spaulding and baby seem like they're enjoying it more and Otis and mother firefly. It seems to be more of a, it seems to be less just for fun and it seems to have more of a, uh, like a specific intent behind it. Maybe I'm just reading too much into it, but like I saw some parallels uh, with Mother Firefly, like in the interrogation room, and with Otis when he takes uh, Lou Temple and uh, Jeffrey Lewis out to the desert. Yeah, you know that I hadn't thought about connecting those two, but that's a good point. And it, it because I, I when he's walking them out to the desert. And he's like, well, you know, we're just going to go get some guns I buried out here. And then they're like, and then, then are you going to kill us or whatever? He's like, well, I ain't got to talk about it like that. It's so final. But, I mean, that's going to be it. I mean, he's just very matter-of-fact <laughs> about all of it, which is, again, is that's the thing about the Mosley performance that's unnerving is instead of being gleefully psychotic the way Sherry Moon and Sid Hagar, he's just – like flatlined about all of it. Like, yeah, just going to kill you. You know, no, well, I, to, to quote Matthew McConaughey in a bad Texas Chainsaw movie, just going to kill you. No big deal. <laughs> well, and that's the horror of it. I think is they realize they're going to die. And their first thought is, but we matter. We can't, we can't just die like this. This is not right. 
and for him, he's just like, what's not right? I'm going to kill you. And then I'm going to go back to where your wives are. Right. It, it, he doesn't care. Yeah. But for them, this is the end and they want to care. And he even asked the guy, he said, you know, pray to your God. And he can't come up with anything, probably because he wasn't a spiritual or a religious person to begin with. Right. And so he doesn't even know how to start. And now he starts mocking him. Mm-hmm. And, but see, that's the thing is I think he enjoys pointing – or Otis enjoys pointing out the hypocrisy in people. You know, it's, it's almost a little bit like the way um, – Heath Ledger played the Joker in The Dark Knight and some other stuff. It's just like, you, you know, you have all this rules and you think it matters and it really doesn't. And you know what? When push comes to shove, in fact, when I put a gun in your face, you have no idea what to even do. You know, and, and I'm doing exactly what I told you I was going to do. I'm going to kill you. I'm going to get these guns. I'm going to go rape your wife and then I'm going to leave. And that's all horrible and heinous. But it's also very – it's the most honest thing in the film. And that's what's so weird about this and watching it is that you see the most honest people are the Fireflies. Like Sheriff Waddell is, is an amazing contrast in like we want him to be the, you know, the lawman that goes and you know, takes things into his own hands. But you realize very quickly that he's gone way above and beyond the call of duty because this is personal for him. And because of that, it taints – anything he's doing like there's no righteous judgment in what he's doing yeah there's a movie that's like that where that's that's the whole movie and it's called uh i saw the devil have you heard of it i ha- i've seen that actually yes so. yeah it's an excellent film and it's very much the same thing where you lose sight of what you should be doing because now you are not the person you should be anymore you're losing yourself because you're letting your emotions take over and they use that in Star Wars even, mm-hmm. you know, like don't let your emotions get to you. But when they do, you you just lose your logic and you lose sight of what you should be doing. And in this film, Wydell, yeah, he just goes over the edge and it starts with that vision he has of his brother. And it's that guilt. You know, what if I don't truly do everything I can do to stop this family that my brother died for nothing? I never I never got revenge for him. Right, and that's what he's haunted by in this whole thing, which makes, again, you know, Bill Mosley does a great performance, but for me, William Forsyth is what, if anything, that sold me on this film, it's him. I This yeah. guy, I I just I like watching him work in anything. And look, I've seen him do some really weird stuff. Ron, dare I bring up Stone Cold? Um, again, because we just <laughs> talked about that a month or so ago. But even in that stupid movie, he was great in that because you just believe him. That's the mark of a good character actor, and I think you nailed it, Aaron, that this movie is filled with great character actors who can just morph into whatever we need him to be at that moment. And he is the embodiment of vengeance gone awry is he's it's not even about him anymore it's about his brother and his brother's memory and doing everything he can and you see him so consumed by it that i mean in the end it it, he lets his guard down and doesn't realize what's about to happen to him before he gets killed so because he's just in that moment where he is just going to squeeze the ever-loving life out of cherry moon zombie once he's got his hands on her you know and I, the performance, though, again, is so, so good. And, again, contrast that against, like, the wacky stuff that Sherry Moon and Sid Hager are doing, the low-key, flat, dead, dead-eyed, deadpan 
Bill Mosley thing, and you've got William Forsyth in there, and you've got great performances going on. But I have to mention, while some of the worst stuff you could possibly dream up happening to people is happening on screen in front of you, I mean, when they take that band over at the motel and there's, they drag the woman out of the shower and throw her on the bed, and then they, the, the woman from Three's Company gets molested by the gun, and you've got all that, you know, that dialogue back and forth. I mean, it's, it's horrible stuff to look at, and it's what makes this movie hard for me to decide do I like it or not because I don't think Zombie wants me to like all of that. Or maybe he does, but the way he presents it, it's like, no, you shouldn't like it, and I'm going to make you feel really bad for even thinking that you should like it. And I think but, you're, I think you're onto something there too. By the way, it's it's like he keeps doing these things to make us, you know, enjoy the characters. Like we get that that humanizing moment for Sid Haig. We get Bill Mosley saying some, you know, crazy stuff. You know, we get multiple shots of Sherry Moon's butt. We get William Forsyth reciting all that great um, blood and thunder kind of dialogue. And then he's like, oh, you like these guys, huh? Well, how do you like them now that they're doing this? And then they all do something terrible, uh, like one right after the other. Somebody does something. Somebody does something awful. It's like he gives you these moments to in which you might like the characters. And just when you're like, yeah, Bill Mosley said some righteous stuff, then like he sucker punches you. Yeah, you can't miss who the good people are supposed to be and who the bad people are supposed to be. But as we all know, that really gets blurred throughout, you know, towards the end of the film. And um, how many people haven't said, oh, I'm against the death penalty. And then along will come a case like a true crime case where someone will do something so despicable, so horrific that you go, you know what? If someone just blew his brains out right now, I'd be okay with it. And that's William Forsythe. He's actually doing what some people do by nature, which is they go against their own grain. So there he is. He's saying, let's do what the good Lord made us to do. But, you know, towards the end of the film, he's not doing what the good Lord would would have made him to do, at least by that definition. Right? No, no, not at all. He's and that I mean, again, I think that's why. If we want to, I'm going to lay Shakespeare on a zombie film, but here I go. That's his tragic flaw, and it's what costs him, right? I mean, he he gets so consumed by his hate. Um, Well, to borrow a a line from the 1983 Red Dawn, boy, all that hate's going to burn you up, you know. And all C. Thomas Howell can say back to him is it keeps me warm. And what happens? He gets shot down by a helicopter. Spoiler alert for a movie that's 35 years old, but you know, you see what I mean, right? It's, it's, you can let all that hate, you know, and you can funnel it and channel it, but what does it ultimately do? It leads to suffering. So well, let me ask you though, as, as you go through the film and you've already said it, but you kind of focus on different characters and sometimes you like some of the characters and then you're reminded later of why you shouldn't like them. But have you ever totally lost that connection with William Forsythe's character? Is there a part of you that wants him to succeed in the end? and bring this family down? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I, I mean, I can tell you the moment that I lose Sheriff Whitehill. Um, it's when, once he's got them in the house, down in the basement, and he starts stapling the pictures to them, Yeah, that, that's when I kind of lose the, uh, that's when I kind of lose the enthusiasm for justice. Because part of it's like, yeah, this is going to be great. He's finally going to get his hands on them, and they're going to get some of their just desserts. And then 
he goes full on, you know, Firefly family when, for example, when he lets baby loose into the, 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 the cattle shoot, then it, it becomes a, after a certain point, it's like, Oh, I feel slightly queasy about this thing. I was super excited about just five minutes before. No, you're right, and I want to tell you where what I was thinking of as I was watching that happen, because, Ron, you and I jumped off the Forsyth train at the same spot, it sounds like. I was thinking about the way I felt about the Jigsaw character in the Saw movies. All right, now, totally different kind of horror film and, and genre film, but th- that film, that film series, and it's interesting and interconnected continuity, tries to get you to understand why that guy does what he does. And at different points, you feel like I'm I'm on his side. But when you really boil it down, you're like, but there's a line that gets crossed when you put somebody in a in a thing of razor wire and you tell them they got five minutes to get out or they're going to burn alive. Like you just like you've crossed a line at some point. Like there's I can't be on your side. Aaron, I think you made a great point when you know a lot of people say oh they you know they want justice right they you know they, and they think they know what justice is, but when it comes down to it and they have to watch it, it changes the way you feel about it because it's not good. I mean, I've had two brothers-in-law that have served multiple tours in Iraq and Afghanistan, and they're both like, you know, pro-America, gung-ho, G.I. Joe kind of guys, just as personality anyway. But they will both tell you that having come back from that, they're like, I don't know why we went over there, and I had to do some of that heinous stuff. Like, it was just, it was my job, and I did it. But trust me, a lot of people have no idea what, what it's really like, and when they have to get to it, it changes their perception. And I feel like that's what Zombie's trying to say with some of this, too, is that, yeah, we want these people brought to justice, but not this way. The problem is is that the real wheels of justice don't turn in a way that viscerally uh, satisfies our need for revenge at all. Exactly. That's exactly right. And we have to accept that if we want the greater good to prevail. We can, and that's that's the difference between the good and the bad. The bad has no limits. The real bad never has any limits. The good, they have their limits, and that's why it will never be as satisfying. But we just have to chalk up a win. I mean, what did George Foreman always say? A W is a W. Right, right. You yeah. know what I would have wanted out of the Forsyth character? Like, what what would have brought me back ultimately is while he's strangling Sherry Moon before Tiny comes up behind him and twists his head off Pumpkinhead style, basically, if he had a moment where he was like, wait a minute, and he just stopped, and he stood up, and he just kind of is catching his breath, and then, boom, he gets caught in that. Like, that would have been the circle back into now we can grab hold of this guy because the good has prevailed. He it's Luke chopping Vader down and then dropping the lightsaber <laughs> and going, Nope, I'm done. You know, but, but we weren't going to get that. No. Yeah. yeah cause, but because again, <laughs> Rob zombie made this movie and not, you know, George Lucas or anybody else. <laughs> cause he, right. it, that's not where he's going to end it because he knows. And, and he's not wrong in this. I don't think And Aaron, you can speak in this specifically because all of the cases you guys have covered on generation one, you know, for all these years, when people give themselves over to that dark side, they're rarely ever able to pull themselves back from it. You know, it's just once you go there, it's hard to turn it back off. Yeah, and that that's just something you have to deal with. Uh, you want people to, like you said, if Sheriff Wydell had caught himself and said, I don't want to become what I'm meant to defeat, then, you know, that we would love to see him do that. But that's not going to happen in this movie and again, it might come from Rob Zombie's view of the world, which is this is the way it really is usually. 
we'd like for it to be some ideal, but it but it just isn't. And that's why this fi- film, for all its uh, zaniness and all of its uh, fantastical situations, there's still a realness to it that it lasts throughout the movie. It just feels right. Like it feels this is this is how it is. I do find it interesting to, to just to jump to the end for a minute that the heroes of justice, if you will, at the end, the cops that do gun them all down at the end, we don't really know much about any of them. That's right. They're just they just do their job, which is they set up the roadblock. <laughs> Here comes people pointing guns at them. They do what cops yep. do. You know. That's right. Doesn't that feel real to you? Yes, it very much does. It's a good, that's an excellent yeah. point. Is and I it wasn't some hero. It wasn't uh, yeah. Dirty Harry that stopped them. Yeah, it would be like Dirty Harry's second underling that shot Scorpio or something like that. So that that would be a good way of looking at it. So, of course, imagine how anticlimactic that would have been, <laughs> Ron. We reviewed that so back in the day. Yeah, yeah. we sure did. <laughs> Yeah, that, that movie would have changed completely differently. Can, can I talk about for a minute here, and I want to take it on a lighter note just for a second, that The Unholy 2, I got such a kick out of seeing Danny Trejo and Diamond Dallas Page on the screen that I, mm-hmm. I told Ron off, off, off uh, Mike a few minutes ago that if Vince Russo had been involved with the WCW at this time, they, they would have made a run in. That would have been a tag team like 10 years earlier. Yep. I could have totally seen it. Yeah, I think they would have. Uh, I think they actually would have been a great tag team because – you know, Danny Trejo. As as long as you paired, as long as the uh, the other team had like a cruiserweight type or a shorter guy yeah. to match up with Danny Trejo, I think it would have worked out a lot really well. Rey Mysterio. That's who you put him against. So no, no, Conan. Co- even better. Yes, Conan. And then you let <laughs> DDP and some other guy work. Yeah. Well, that's interesting because it's like again, you get more of these larger than life characters who just show up briefly. And make a uh, make a big impact. The uh, the scene, one of my favorite scenes in the movie is actually where the uh, the unholy two are skulking around Charlie Altamont's uh, brothel. Yeah. And Danny Trejo just shows up and cuts Deborah Van Valkenburg's throat out of nowhere. Like she's just some hooker getting a beer, and then boom, Danny Trejo just cuts her throat for fun. Not necessarily for fun, but just that's because that's what he does. Well, is it? Yeah, but that's that's the thing, right? Is Forsyth has called them in because he's had to go. You know, I've got to go above the law now to to do this, right? But there's consequences to that. You know, like you you can't you can't have the kraken on your side unleash it and then you know be surprised when it takes out some of your villages, right? Right. Well, it's funny because Sheriff Wydell tries to warn the unholy too about how he doesn't think they're taking it seriously enough because they just think, oh, they, they won't be ready for us. But later on, he, he does the same exact thing. Mm-hmm. And, and if anything, the Unholy Two look like they're taking it more seriously than he does. Yeah, it's possible. Well, they seem to come, like when they finally move on Altamont's place, they seem really prepared for it. Like they seem like they've got locations scouted out like they have an idea of where everybody is and they do because as we find out Altamont Charlie Altamont's who is who turns them over to the unholy two in the first place so it it makes sense that they're kind of taking it lightly when they have an in and they already have a plan in mind of how they're going to execute this 
they're not just flying by the seat of their pants like Sheriff Wydell is. They they are they're calm and they're relaxed and they're you know cracking jokes and cooking some gross looking hamburgers. Well, but, they're <laughs> they're just as sadistic a killers as the fireflies. They just happen to work for the law. Isn't that the point? At least this time, yeah. <laughs> yeah, this. I mean, they're not. They're maybe not psychotic and unhinged, but they're. They have no regard for human life any more than Bill Mosley's character does. I mean, no, but I think uh, Sheriff Wydell. I think the reason why he lectures them and then doesn't pay attention to his own lecture is because he doesn't trust anyone else. He trusts himself. Yeah, I mean, he he completely cracks when Mother Firefly breaks out that bit about his brother, right? Like that's when he com- totally loses it, and when he stabs her, like that to me is sort of his. He he puts on the dark hat, and he never can come back at that point. Well, and I, th- I think that's uh, everybody's met their match, and you brought it up before, but you think about the Dark Knight when Batman faces the Joker. The Joker knows how to push his buttons. Yeah, exactly. So when he makes him, you know, choose between Rachel and Dent, and then tricks him in the in the change of it, anyway, breaks him from that. So, and that's the game because they don't play by the rules. Mm-hmm. Even if they've laid down, they've, if they've even laid down rules, it doesn't matter. Right. That's the thing until about this movie too is that we're just kind of thrown into it. I mean, you have to sort of pick it up as you go along to figure out what 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 rules are we playing, where are we get. I think most of it comes from Forsyth's. Um, you know, fire and brimstone talk. And that we know is tainted because he's obviously out for revenge. He's out for blood. He's too close to this. Yes. So, which is, again, th- there's a reason why, and I know you've discovered this area in all your years of, of researching crime and things. There's a reason why, if you have personal connections to things, they very, ever rarely let you stay on it. Like this, because this is what will happen. Like, people know this. Yeah, it'd be easy for them to just plant a gun or get some fake testimony, something. They're going to get the victory. They're going to get the revenge. Whereas someone who can be more objective will hopefully follow the rules, follow the letter of the law. Exactly. So, I, I do want to talk just briefly about the the character of Charlie Altamont and Ken Forey in particular. They, Ron, you've met, said, mentioned you know people you've met before. You mentioned that on a previous podcast that you met him at a, at a con as well. Yes, he was a super nice guy, and also probably about six five or so. Yeah, I mean he's huge. He's a huge human being, and I find it so funny that he plays somebody who has such a weak backbone in this movie. Like he gets pushed around by everybody, and I. I kind of <laughs> laughed at that, but I was like, well, I guess that's the old story. The bigger they are, the softer they are. Because he is kind of a big softy. He's kind of like the uh, the Lando Calrissian of the movie. That's exactly what he is. And he's he's out there to make money. And if he has to screw over his family uh, because he has a gun to his head and money being shoved into his pocket, then, hey, all's fair. Well, I, I never and thought it's... Lando, and you guys just planted that for me, and I'm just sitting here going like, if Lando dropped more MFers, yes, I can see it. So, like, I, I'm, yeah, but if, you're if, right. If, like, if Lando and Lobot went to pick up some chickens. <laughs> oh, you had to bring that scene up. So. Rhode Island Red. <laughs> well, that's, a, that's another thing about his, his uh, it goes to his soft spot because you really think he's going to have, like, cleave on around if he's not 
secretly kind of a nice guy or at least a, yeah. a soft touch. No, you're right. You're you're exactly right. And but that's again, he he betrays them, and that's when you know all hell breaks loose. And I, I'm with you, you know Aaron. I wanted you to weigh in on that too because Ron and I both have, and Ron really brought it up. But I agreed with him that point when we both sort of jumped off of Waddell's train was when he started torturing the family back at the Firefly Mansion. What did you make of all of that? Um. Yeah, it's kind of like uh, you say, we're going to set this cake down in front of you, but don't eat it. Well, that cake's right there. He can't help himself. It's too tempting to destroy what he hates. And that's why he can't think clearly anymore. He's lost himself in the rage. But he also makes the classic Bond villain mistake is that he takes too damn long telling people what he's going to do to him. I needed Scott Evil to jump out and go, let's just shoot him. We'll get a gun together and we'll shoot him. Righteous thunder. That's what he's bringing. And he can't wait to deliver it because he wants them to know exactly what's coming. But the thing is, do they care? That's the question I ask. I don't think Otis cares at all. Yeah, that's not the point. Uh, Sheriff Wydell. Yeah, it's his it's his stage time. He's going to take it. He's not letting that moment pass. Uh, That that really is kind of an interesting statement. Um, I don't think. It's weird because when you watch the the family members get tortured, like they don't seem to care that they're the ones getting tortured. But it's when, for example, he's like when he's stapling the picture to baby, that's when, you know, the other two uh, Spalding and Otis start screaming and freaking out. And it's it's interesting to see them essentially offer themselves to Wydell as like a, a sacrifice to his anger to in an attempt to spare the others. It's a weird, like humanizing point. Like when, uh, Spalding and baby are like going back and forth about who did what to who, uh, it's just one of those, uh, it's just one of those weird things that kind of ties back into the family dynamic. And it's, it's another one of those, well, maybe they're not so bad after all, because at least they love each other kind of (laughs) moments. (laughs) That's just family loyalty, and I don't think we can read beyond that. I don't think you can say that they're good people at all just because they stop for tutti-frutti and that they'd be willing to sacrifice themselves for one another. It's it's family loyalty, and that's the difference between uh, their characters and Charles Altamont. Uh, Charlie just, uh, he's, he's going to turn tail and run, and he's going to screw them over because it'll save his own skin, whereas you know Captain Spaulding and Otis and Baby, they're not going to turn on each other. They'll go down. But Charlie does come back to try to make it right at the end and gets an axe to his neck for his troubles. Yeah, you know, and that's funny you bring that up because you said it's too bad that Sheriff Wydell couldn't have had a moment where he comes back around and he saves himself. And and yet we get Charlie Altamont doing just that. Yeah, can I tell you, though, I didn't want that for his character because I kind of bought into the fact that he was just in it for the money anyway. And, well, like you guys have said, he's the Lando, and I hadn't put that together. But that's great. He shouldn't have come back. He should have just Yeah, but Lando had a gun to him, too, uh, to his whole organization. So he had to do what he had to do in the moment. Yeah, And that's why this is a perfect comparison to Lando because Charlie Altamont's in the same position. Well, yeah, it's pray I don't alter the deal any further, right? And then he gets an axe yep. to his neck, and that alters the deal. So, well, he was already trying to alter the deal. <laughs> yeah, this is true. 
So I, I do think, though, that you've hit on something about the way that they, they know they're going to go down together and they're going to go down in flames. They're driving through the next morning and Mosley sees that, that uh, barricade up ahead. And what does he do? He wakes the other two up, hands them a gun and says, let's do it. I mean, they know yep. like they're, they're dead. And so might as well go out in a blaze of glory. Right. Uh, which, I, you know, I'm watching this and I'm going, this is where Rob Zombie wants to do the wild bunch, you know, or something like that. This is what that feels like to me is one of those 70s ultra violent Bonnie and Clyde shootouts at the end, you know, just just incredibly long and drawn out, but set to the Southern rock anthem of Freebird that that part I wanted to ask about because I may be reading too much into this, but is he trying to say something with these bookended songs? You know, you're not going to catch the Midnight Riders, the opening one, right? And with the Allman Brothers band. And so they're on the run. Now it's, I just want to be released. And that's what happens at the end when they all get gunned down. No, no, I think he is saying something. And what's interesting about it is he got the rights to the songs before any of those artists or labels knew what kind of movie this was. (laughs) And some of them were upset later that he used their song in this film. Uh, what can you say? Rob knew exactly what he was doing. I mean, if nothing else, you have to love the soundtrack. I'm not even a huge fan of this style of music. Mm-hmm. And I enjoyed, I enjoy. I thought the soundtrack was very fitting for the film. It was perfect. It, it straddles that line between Western and like dirty 70s crime movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the soundtrack does at least and, and you're right it is phenomenal and I definitely think Zombie for all his faults as a, as a filmmaker and you know he's got some uh, he he does a really good job in this movie with like fitting the soundtrack to the mood he's trying to convey. I'll I'll tell you guys now, having seen the number of his films I've seen, I haven't seen all of them, but I've seen the bulk of them. I think the only one I haven't seen is El Super Bisto or whatever. I didn't see the animated thing, but everything else it's I've awful. seen. <laughs> I've seen that. Yeah, the, the, this use of music is his best balance of putting a popular song in to match what emotion he's trying to wring out of the screen and what's happening in front of you. And I don't really think those two bookends are, are big because, I mean, you're talking about two Southern rock anthems in Midnight Rider and Freebird, all right? And as a guy who grew up in North Alabama and played in a lot of bands, it, nobody ever screamed play, you know, Allman Brothers, but everybody wanted you to play freaking Freebird, you know? And I, you know, I, I hated that too, but I get why people like that. Um, Midnight Rider is such a it's such a smart ass and subversive song. If you listen to the lyrics, it's pretty much like you ain't got no chance, you know, and it, no matter what, just going to slip right through your fingers. And that's exactly what happens. And then this free bird thing is it's somebody who's weary and worn out and tired and just done. And, and, but they're not going to go out quietly. They have that whole great, graceful kind of amazing grace style interlude. And then what happens? It devolves into guitar solo mambo jumbo when all the bullets are flying, right? Because that's how those guys were going to go down. They were going to go down in a hail of, of gunfire. They weren't going to go down whimpering in a courtroom somewhere or, you know, laying on the side of the road or sucker punched in the middle of the night. They were going down. Uh, you know, Wild Bunch style. And I think that's exactly what he's trying to convey here. It's it's an evocative scene. It's probably one of the 
the best sequences Rob Zombie's ever come up with, in my opinion. Totally redeemed himself from the first film. See, I kind of like the first film. Uh, I mean, I don't think the the first film is great, but I think it's good. And uh, it's I'm kind of jumping ahead to getting closer to final judgments here. But I this movie has a lot of individual segments, like individual sections, individual set pieces that are great. They're just flat out great. And this is one of those things that everybody, I think, remembers from the movie, uh, you know, 10, 10 years after the fact or whatever. No, I, I think you're, you're dead on. And it's, it's a good segue to get into final thoughts and popcorn ratings. So, Ron, we'll start with you. What are yours for The Devil's Rejects? Uh, I'm going to go with a, a medium popcorn. I, I, I used to really enjoy this movie more. And having watched it again recently for the podcast, I didn't like it as much this time because the stuff that worked uh, for me and that has worked for me are the, uh, you know, like the shootout, the opening shootout is great. I think um, the scene with uh, Sid Haig and PJ Souls is great. I think uh, some of the terrorizing of Banjo and Sullivan, the, uh, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre scene where um, Wendy, yeah, when Wendy runs out into the street and gets run over by the truck, I still laugh like a maniac every time I see that. Um, you know, everything with uh, Otis in the desert uh, and uh, with uh, Banjo and Sullivan, the two men are great. The the ending shootout is is pretty spectacular. The the skulking around in Charlie's uh, whorehouse is is awesome. The, the little little moments and the little montages and stuff like that all I really enjoy all that stuff like I think he's got some of his best like uh, most evocative montages in this flick that he's ever done or will ever do but there's a lot of stuff that happens in between that that I really don't like and I like less now than when I saw it when it first came out sometimes it seems like things just go on like the tutti tutti fucking fruity goes on a little bit too long when Sherry Moon is like tormenting them with that Chinese Japanese Iceland thing that goes on too long. So it's it's a media bordering on large. Uh, some of the pieces I really love, and other things just kind of have started to grate on me. And it's even though it's only like an hour and forty seven minutes, it still feels like it's a little bit too long. And I'm, I'm going to blame that on that 70s pacing. All right, Aaron, your turn. Popcorn ratings <laughs> for The Devil's Rejects. Oh, no, this would be a large popcorn for me because uh, the stuff you're complaining about, I mean, I, I agree with all the stuff you like, but the stuff you're complaining about totally fits that 70s horror film aesthetic. And I think he's nailing it. Either that or it's by accident. But see, that 70s aesthetic is what allows him to get away with it, in my opinion, because it's a different style of filmmaking. And you might call it low budget, but it just works for him. And if he had made this film, like if it had been set uh, in a different style, maybe like a modern style of film, we would look at this and say, man, the editing's horrible. There were some scenes that should have just been dropped. But because it's set in that style, that 70s style, it just works for me. And so I'm chewing it up throughout the whole movie and I'm never bored. 
And oftentimes when people ask me, like, what is, the, what is it about that movie that you really like about any film? I'll say, well, how well does it execute what its intention was and how entertained was I throughout the film? And this movie does it all for me. I'm entertained throughout the whole thing. Uh, I'm never bored. And I've watched it, I think, five times. I'm going to say this. Like I had texted Ron and admitted earlier, I watched this the first time and I was like, I don't, I don't know. I don't, know if, I don't know if this is for me. Am I just being an old man? What, what is it I'm not getting about this? And I watched it a second time, and I tried to put myself in, what, are, what is Rob Zombie trying to say here? Because he's always trying to say something. And usually it's something very simple. Like if I'm, if I'm out thinking it, I've, I've missed the point. And I think we nailed it earlier, is that he's trying to say that everybody can be really screwed up if the situation calls for it. And you just have to... Yeah, and, and there's consequences to it no matter who you are and that everybody has the dark side and watching this film with that in mind now I can't say that like I love it or anything but I can tell you it, it's very well done and I'll say now it's Rob Zombie's best film I, I don't think he's ever done one that was as good as this got close with that remake of Halloween but as I've said before and on mm-hmm. other podcasts the third act when he has to remake John Carpenter's Halloween you can tell he has no interest in that and he just mails it in and then that and his sequel to that is a I have a weird relationship with people can listen to that in the archives I, I, that's a very weird film but I couldn't tell anybody to watch that and say it was good this movie is good but it's very hard to watch and there's going to be some of the audience that are listening to this talk about this and go God I can't believe you guys are giving this a pass and it's not that I'm passing off on it as if it's okay but what he does and the reasons those those awful things are on the screen are just like we've talked about it's i'm going to try to endear you to these people and you're going to find a like a nugget of humanity in them and then i'm going to remind you how really really awful they are and then i'm going to make you feel really awful for trying to relate to that because why would you want to you know <laughs> that's right it, it's that's like right. Rob, rob zombie is is twisted in this thing it's like you want to see dark stuff fine i will put together the darkest weirdest shit i can come up with and then i'm gonna make you feel really lousy for it <laughs> and, and i agree with ron rob my take on rob zombie is he's like quentin tarantino he doesn't know when to stop he's like he always goes on a beat or two too long for me and there's times that that happens in this film too but more so in later films than in this one i think in this one he really had his best stuff, and I kind of wish he could come back and do something like this again and kind of get away from the gore fest that he's tried to do the last couple of times he's been out in film. Um, so I'm going to give it a large popcorn because I do think it is very good. It's not my favorite thing on Earth, but it is definitely the best Rob Zombie thing I've seen. And uh, maybe next to the Dragula video, that's going to be a second, But because um, I love that song. But, um, but uh, yeah... It, this is this is one that I think you should see, and I, I'll tell you, I, Aaron, I, I'm glad to hear you say that you can be entertained by it. You're never bored with it. I can say you're, I'm never bored with this movie, but I'm much more entertained by having this conversation with people about it. I think this is the kind of movie that lends itself to you watch it, and then you you got to talk about it, uh, or exactly. else I think it would mess you up a little bit. <laughs> you know, it's funny you brought up Quentin Tarantino because, um, spoiler alert, but I, I'm not a fan of his, but he made a movie um, that I, it's, it's Django Unchained and I absolutely yeah. love it. It's like in the other films where he went on too many beats too long and I was getting irritated with it in that film. It's almost as though it needs to have those extra beats and it just works for me. And it's, to me, it's a, it's an amazing film. So 
I think anybody is capable of making a great film. And I think that's what I see with this is it's like it's the perfect Rob Zombie film. It, you, it may not be for you, but if you are honest about it and you look over his filmography, this is the one that really stands out. And, and like you said, the Halloween one has some really good stuff in it, even if it's not perfect. But um, this is going to be, I think, forever his best film. Now, did you guys watch the uh, the unedited version, or did you watch the theatrical cut? I watched the theatrical cut. Yeah, I uh, watched, well, I have the Blu-ray. So now, see, I watched the uh, I've got the the DVD, and then I've also and I but I just watched it on demand. So I believe I was watching the theatrical cut last night. I think that might play into my decision a little bit, just because I think the uh, the unrated cut he cut out a bunch of small chunks to get it to have down to an R rating. So he ended up only cutting like 30 or 40 seconds of the movie. But I think that might be part of the problem I have with the, the, the flow of it, I guess. Oh, so the, the unrated cut may have messed with the flow of the movie for you. And that's why you may have only given it a medium popcorn this time. And if you had just judged the, theatrical it might have been a little bigger yeah i want to jump in and say having seen both the the theatrical cut and the extended cut of the halloween remake the theatrical cut's the one to go with the extended cut yes goes absolutely on, yeah it goes on way too long and it's just it doesn't work now on the other hand the director's cut of the second the h2 is a much more close to what he wanted to do as a film. If you watch the theatrical cut of that, there's no, there's not a movie to it. Like it doesn't make any sense at all. It's a weird, it's a weird dreamlike movie. Yes, very much. But the yeah. second, the, the director's cut of that, you get that more. And I think you're able to follow it more in this. So that's one time when that helps, but I agree with you, Ron director's cuts on Ron zombie movies. There's a reason they cut that stuff because it does kill the flow sometimes. Cause it just goes on way too long. So, I doing the, the theatrical cut, I think, is a, a smarter move for the most part with him, except for H2. So now uh, I kind of like the H2 theatrical cut because it feels like a, a it feels like a Dario Argento movie and that it doesn't make sense. But there's lots of cool things to look at. <laughs> I would say I wish it was an Argento movie. Go listen to my review in the archives, folks. You'll hear me tell the tale of how that's one of three films I ever got up and walked out of a theater on. So, uh, <laughs> wow. But, uh, yeah. And, and funny thing too, that I walked out with like five minutes to go in it, not realizing that was how much I had left to go, but I was just done at one point. So uh, I, gave, I gave up on it. And, I, I wanted to let you know before, before this ends though, uh, that my, probably my favorite movie that I've ever seen is Pan's Labyrinth. Fantastic. Interesting. That's a that's a change of pace from this. So, uh, well, I'm throwing it out now. Anytime you want to come back on and talk about that, I'm down because I got thoughts. So uh, we could do that. So, well, maybe sometime. Yes, yeah. it's it's def. I just bought it on the Criterion Blu-ray. Um, so I'm hoping to watch that again soon. Fantastic. So, well, Aaron, thanks again for joining us on Filmstrip. We really appreciated both you and Justin coming over. And tell folks again where they can find out more about Generation Y and what you guys have got coming up here toward the end of the year. Oh, well, we're on iTunes and Stitcher Radio. We're on Spotify. And we can be found at genypod.com. That's G-E-N-W-H-Y-P-O-D.com. And as we head toward the end of the year, We'll be covering some very mysterious cases, I assure you. 
Always a good time. I, I can say I jumped on the train with you guys like the third or fourth episode. I remember specifically listening all the way back then and have been on ever since. So glad to see you guys still going out there and putting out very good podcasts. I think Justin mentioned it last time. You guys were the true crime podcast before there was a serial and like the 75,000 other ones that there are now. So uh, when I found you guys, I was I was thrilled. And uh, the imitations don't always meet the uh, the original, that's for sure. So uh, if I give that plug out there, I certainly will. I know Ron's mentioned his wife's a huge fan. Uh, you can blame me for that, uh, Ron, because I think I'm the one that turned her on to it. So, uh, <laughs> uh, but, you know, I've known Holly a long time. So, But again, Aaron, thanks for being on with us. We really appreciate it. Of course, folks, you can find all of our episodes on iTunes, on Google Play, on Stitcher. Uh, just subscribe to Continuous Play Podcast uh, slash Filmstrip. Um, you can go to our website, continuousplaypodcast.com, and there you can pick your podcast adventure. We've got four different channels for you now. We've got The Art of Slaying, the complete Buffy the Vampire Slayer retrospective is still up there for you. Um, hopefully the Angel retrospective coming soon. Uh, we've got, of course, Filmstrip. You've got the Fabish Factor Film Podcast, which just released a new episode finally. That goes out on both feeds, but uh, Kurt released uh, a review of Blade Runner 20 49. Uh, so I know you want to check that out. And then, of course, you can get, and if you're into football, you can listen to me and Brian and some other guys talk about sports because uh, we don't have enough to do and we need more podcasts in our life. So you can check all that out at continuousplaypodcast.com. We do appreciate your support. If you like the show, leave us a review on iTunes uh, or wherever you check out the podcast. Check out the Generation Y podcast. Check out their merch as well. Very cool stuff. I'm looking at my Generation Y mug right now on my desk as I record this. So uh, we're glad to uh, have you guys on and hope to have both of you on again sometime soon, Aaron. So for a next time, for Aaron and Ron, I'm Jay. Thanks for listening to Filmstrip. Thank you for listening to Filmstrip. You can find more episodes on our website, continuousplaypodcast.com forward slash movies. Please leave us a positive review on iTunes and link up with us on Facebook. The Filmstrip theme music is produced and performed by Frozen Lake 121. <laughs>